So we have a few of these disciples that are, that are very, very young. And they're actually teenagers. They would actually fit well within our youth group. And then we have a number of young adults uh, that are going to top out in their, in their upper 20s. In all likelihood, that's what you have in the disciples. Okay? So maybe that kind of repositions how we view this group of men that we've grown up hearing about with, with a little bit different set of eyes. So let's go ahead and start on our first one. This is Andrew. And uh, Andrew is actually one of the first, if not the first, of the disciples. So we have a little bit of information about Andrew. So kind of fun facts about him is that he was the younger brother of Peter. He was a former disciple of John the Baptist. And actually, when he hears Jesus, the first thing he does, he goes home and he tells his older brother, you've got to hear this guy. You have to meet him. Right? So that's the first thing that, that, that Andrew does. Another kind of fun thing about this, and you probably already know this studying Greek, is that his name roughly translated is manly, right? So he's kind of a, he's the dude. He's, he's, he's not been uh, saddled with being the boy named Sue. He has a very manly name. Um, he is, maybe the one thing that we also know about Andrew is that he is privy to one of Christ's last sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, or excuse me, on the um, Mount of Olives. And so uh, he is actually lucky and blessed to be part of one of those last sermons. This picture of Andrew is the oldest known portrait of Andrew. And it's actually the very oldest portrait we have of any of the disciples. This comes from the early 300s. This is actually found in a catacomb, which is actually kind of cool. You guys have heard about catacombs before. That's, that's really where early Christians were forced to live. And sometimes they actually had tombs there. They had worship services there because persecution pushed things underground. Well, while they were underground, they made some wonderful artwork. And this is actually something you find on the ceiling. So you actually see he's kind of on the young side, close cropped hair, etc. That's the earliest picture we have of Andrew. So what happens with Andrew? Right? This is really the part of the story that we, we get a chance to see today. What happens with Andrew, and I, I won't get too graphic, but each one of these disciples do meet graphic ends. And we need to understand that. So after the early church starts in Jerusalem, everybody begins to move out to Judea and Samaria and to the othermost parts of the earth. What happens to Andrew is that he actually uh, takes the gospel to Central Asia to a place called Scythia, right? Scythia was a region that was known as, I quote, the land that ate men. It was a wild, wild place, a very dangerous place to be. And Andrew, as a young man, takes the gospel to Scythia, to Central Asia. And we're also told that he ends up dying on an X-shaped cross. And he, this happens in A.D. 62. So right before a lot of the other original disciples, we call the apostles, meet their end, this is what happens to Andrew. To this day, there are churches in Central Asia that regard Andrew as being the one that actually first brought the gospel to their part of the world. I think that's pretty inspiring. So let's move to the next one. Our next picture. There you go. Thank you. This is a more romanticized picture of Philip. So there's, there's only a little bit of information we have about Philip. Philip was also, uh, like, like Andrew, a fisherman. So we'll talk about that in a minute. He lived in Bethsaida in Galilee. And, and let's just level set about what it meant to be a fisherman. They weren't poor. This was a thriving industry in this part of the world. So to be a fisherman at that time in history meant you had a good job, right? You worked hard, you got paid for it, 
You weren't poor. You weren't destitute. So Philip is a fisherman. Uh, Philip is also one who initially met John the Baptist before he meets Jesus. But you'll notice that Philip, while he's a Jew, has a Greek name. Anybody else remember a famous Philip from history? You had uh, Alexander the Great's dad was named Philip of Macedon and then renamed Philip of Macedonia, right? So Philip is actually somebody who there are some, later in Jesus' ministry, there are some Greek uh, inquirers as to the faith and they make a beeline for Philip and they ask Philip to be the one who introduces them to Christ. So what happens to Philip? Again, a very different individual. These guys are not all the same. They're not all the same age. They're not all the same experience. What happens to Philip? Um, he eventually will go to a place called Hierapolis, which is not too far, again, again from where we read earlier from Colossae, right? So it's in Asia Minor. He goes there, and I, the, the truth is and we have a number of different sources that intersect at the same point, tell us that he was actually hung upside down with iron hooks until he expired. Now the reason why he did that, the reason why they, they were so harsh with him and other of these disciples is that his greatest crime was leading somebody prominent in the community to Christ. And so you had other people in that community that were very threatened by that, and as a result... He's martyred because of it. Philip is also a really close friend. And so you actually see this. This actually comes from a, um, uh, a monastery in Turkey. And this is actually the earliest known picture that we have of Philip. Right? Different than the others. No facial hair. Kind of young. And this is actually from the 7th century. Okay? Let's flip to the next one. So this is Bartholomew. So, uh, Scripture kind of presents Philip and Bartholomew as kind of being buddies. Um, in fact, Philip was the one who, when he heard of, about Jesus, goes back to Bartholomew and says, you've got to meet him. They both have been previous disciples of John. So, when Bartholomew goes to meet Jesus, at a distance, Jesus sees him walking up, and Jesus says, wow, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. This is even before they have a relationship. So apparently, Bartholomew was a man of great character, even as a, as a young, at a young age, and it's somebody that our Lord would have said at a sight, since he knew him, he had a wonderful and deep character. So uh, actually, go back to that last picture. When you see pictures of Bartholomew through history, and let me just take a, take a quick step here. When you do research, or when we do research, about each one of these disciples and kind of their life and where they meet their end, we only have a certain amount of information within the biblical text. So what we do then is we kind of look to what we call extra-biblical sources. A lot of writing about these guys and where they went through their early lives. And some of it you can trust, some of it you can't trust. But there's so much available what you do is you look for where the stories intersect and where they're the same from different sources. So we have a real treasure trove about what these guys did with their early lives, right, after we lose touch with them through the biblical text. So when you see artwork about Bartholomew, and this actually come, uh, actually go back, when you see artwork, you see a couple of things about Bartholomew that are always going to be, always going to be there. Uh, as you look at the picture, in his left hand he's holding a curved knife, right? And in his right hand he's showing what looks like a Bartholomew suit. Bartholomew meets his end by going to a place called Armenia. 
right? Even in present-day Armenia, he shares the gospel. There is a wife of a magistrate that trusts Christ. And what did they do? Um, what they do is they flay him. They skin him alive. Now, we have a number of different sources that say the same thing about Bartholomew. That's why you see it happening again and again in this extra-biblical report. He met a, a very, very difficult end. Now, here's you can go to the next picture. The great part of this story is that to the present day, there is an Armenian church still in this part of the world, in, in Armenia, and they also recognized that Bartholomew was the very first one to bring the gospel to this group of people. You under, when you understand where Armenia is, and they are literally surrounded by Islamic states, the Armenians are one of the few groups of people that have maintained their identification with Christianity. So that's what happens with Bartholomew. This actually is one of my favorite pictures because it's a picture taken of a mosaic. Um, in early times, what, what people would do is they would take different colored glass and pieces of stones and they would create a picture. I just think it's amazing the way that they did this. So this is actually a, a picture that's a representation of that mosaic. So that's Bartholomew. One other fun fact about Bartholomew. When, when uh, I was uh, ready to be born, um, my mom and dad, so it's appropriate my dad's here today, Hi, Dad. Good to see you. So they thought of three separate names that they could call me. Matthew, thank you very much. Nathaniel was their second choice. But they also really tied with calling, they, they were tied to the idea of call, naming me Bartholomew. So uh, all I can say is, thanks for not going there. <laughs> it might have been a bridge too far even for me. So our next disciple is Matthew. And again, we start out with kind of a romanticized picture of Matthew. Again, remember that most of these guys are relatively young. Matthew is from Capernaum, so most of the disciples are from the same geographical area. And one of the things that we have to remember about the disciples, we get to remember it together, is that they sometimes represented very extreme positions even within their culture. So we have to remember as believers there are very extreme positions that we have to comprehend in our relationships. Matthew is one of them. If you were to choose, if you were a first century person going, I, I can see the sense here, I can see why you chose this disciple, but why did you choose Matthew? Matthew seems like an unnatural choice because he was a tax collector. right? So when you look at their society, he was really on the bottom rung of those people in terms of any respect or trust. The, in fact, you, you remember there are several times in Jesus' ministry where he's confronted by the, by the Pharisees and they say, Jesus, why in the world are you spending so much time with tax gatherers and sinners? Right? They were hated for a reason. They were, they were viewed as thieves and turncoats by the Jewish people and really pretty much for a good reason because what would happen is that uh, Rome, for instance, uh, if Rome said, John, you owe me $10, and if I was your tax collector, I would say, John, you know what? Rome is after you for $10 or for $15. You need to pay up as quick as you can. So what these tax collectors would do is they would go ahead and, and charge their own excise tax on anything that Rome wanted. They would take their cut off the top, off the top and they'd send it to Rome. And as a result, Rome didn't really trust them, but they were a necessary evil and their own people hated them, right? They just, they had, the, the lowest of the low respect for people who are tax gatherers. But the one thing that's true about a typical tax gatherer is that you were an affluent person. You had money. 
you didn't earn it the old-fashioned way, but you did have a lot of money. So when Matthew comes on the scene, Jesus invites him to follow him, and he does so immediately. So he enters into this initial relationship with these other disciples being from a very extreme background. So what happens with Matthew? Well, Matthew actually takes the gospel. He, he travels and goes into northern Africa. He takes the gospel to Ethiopia. Now, let's look at this next picture. What's really cool about this little picture here is this is found in an Ethiopian monastery. Of all things, Ethiopia. And, and again, I'm going to look at you, Jake, because I know that you're, you're a full-fledged Greekling at this point at seminary. So we, we have a lot of early versions of the Bible that come from the Coptic church. So Coptic churches are found in Egypt, and they're also found in Ethiopia. And to this day, there are some of these Ethiopian churches that still regard their Christianity as having started because of the, the, uh, uh, the work that Matthew did. 2,000 years ago. I just think it's amazing. It's not, a part in the, it's not in a part of the world that you would ever imagine. So where does Matthew meet his end? He actually dies in Ethiopia, and he is, for lack of a better way of putting it, impaled on multiple spears. That's how he meets his end. Now, I don't want to revisit the grisly ends that some of these guys had. What I think is important pointing out is that it was as a result of sharing the gospel and the wrong person trusted Christ. Somebody with some prominence that got him in trouble. And that's exactly what happened. So that's what happens with Matthew. Next one, please. You're doing a great job, Jared. That, that forefinger is probably doing a, getting a workout this morning. So here's Peter. We've, we've all heard a lot of stories about Peter. This is not necessarily a very old picture of Peter. It comes from the 11th century. And you see the, key, the keys there kind of designating that he's the leader of the church. The next picture that intrigues me, this is the earliest picture of Peter. This comes from the early 300s, and it comes from another catacomb. And it actually shows kind of that close-cropped, gray hair, little gray beard, all that kind of good stuff. So we know plenty about Peter. I'll mention two things about Peter that are important to me. Um, you remember at the, at the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus in this glorified state is being showed up there with, with Moses and with Elijah. And Peter starts talking, and he says, Luke tells us, he says, Lord, let's go ahead and set up a tabernacle for all three of you. And the text tells us that while he was talking, God the Father interrupts him and says, this is my son, listen to him. So this man up here has the distinction of being one of the only people in the Bible that God just absolutely interrupts. Just not important, stop talking. Um, Peter meets his end. He does so in Rome, and it looks like that probably in A.D. 67 or 68, he is crucified by Emperor Nero. But what he asks for is that he doesn't view that he should be crucified in the same way as his Lord. He actually asks to be turned upside down. So he is, he is crucified upside down during the, during the rule of Nero. Real guy, our brother in the Lord, and that's how he met his end. Well, let's go to the next one, James, son of Zebedee. So James and John, both kind of sons of Zebedee, but Jesus calls them sons of thunder, right? So there are a few things that are unique about James. So he is the older brother of John, right? So, and they, they have this persona among the other disciples that, you know, even though all the disciples like to argue about who the greatest is, 
It's only James and John that sent their mom to go ahead and ask Jesus, will you give me a special place in the hereafter? And Jesus said, uh, let me think about it. No, yeah, it's not happening. Uh, it's interesting that when you see that in the text, the next thing that happens is, is that Luke tells us that all the disciples are angry with him, and then they resume their argument about who the greatest is. <laughs> but James, James, son of Zebedee. Now, James and John are a couple of our disciples that actually come from a more affluent background because Mark tells us that their dad owned servants. So they had, consider them small business owners, right? They ran a fishing concern. They had some money, so they kind of brought that to the table. But one of the things that's unique about James is that he is the only one of the disciples, the original disciples, that we have a biblical record of of how they met their end. Herod Agrippa in A.D. 44, he's actually the first one of the disciples that is martyred. Herod Agrippa thinks that he's going to get in front of this new movement and he is figuratively and literally going to cut the head off of the leader, which is what he does. Uh, James is beheaded. But all that really does is that push, pushes the gospel out further. So it has the, absolutely the opposite effect that he had intended. So let's now go down to his, his younger brother, John. So here you have the little picture of John. It's not, not particularly old, but it's him going to the empty tomb. It's the next picture that I'm interested in. And this is another extremely old. This is the earliest picture that we have of John. Again, comes from the 300s, found in a catacomb. And it shows a very, he's kind of, he's frozen in time. He's always going to be a very, very young man. So one of the things that's true about John is we are just about certain that he's the only one of the original disciples that died a natural death. He lives to be an extremely old man for those times probably in his mid to maybe even late 90s. But it's not that they didn't try. So uh, we're all familiar with the fact that he dies on the Isle of Patmos, but the reason why he's sent there is that he is thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil, and multiple sources tell us that he he miraculously survives. And so failing in that attempt, they they exile him, they banish him to the Isle of Patmos, where where he eventually dies. At the end of the first century, if you were to ask about any disciple, the most renowned, most well-known disciple would have been the Apostle John. In fact, he was so well-known that you could go through any of the churches in Asia Minor or in Palestine and talk about the elder, and everybody knew that you were talking about John. So that's where John actually ends a very, very long, long life. So let's go to James now. James, son of Alphaeus. Um... James, we have very little information about, except for the fact that he was the lesser James, or the younger James, or the shorter James. You can actually translate it all the same way. I, I have often thought that, that DTS should teach a class on how do you tell the difference between all the Jameses running around in the New Testament, because it's hard to keep track of them. It's like a big family of Jameses. But James here, son of Alphaeus, what we do know is that he was very young, so when we think about when we think about these disciples, these followers that were teenagers, almost certainly this was one of them. Now, what I love about this picture is where it was found. And again, I'm looking at you. Uh, I, I, I know I'm giving you a lot of, lot of attention here, Jake, but I'm looking at you because this picture is actually found in a really remote little monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's kind of important. 
what, what happens at the end of James' life is he, he goes into Egypt and he is either clubbed to death or stoned to death after being thrown off of a wall. Again, because of somebody there local who had trusted Christ. Now where this is found is in the same little monastery where 1,700 years later, a guy by the name of Count von Tischendorf would find Codex Sinaiticus, the, the, the single most important uh, Greek translation of the New Testament that, that has really helped to foster every NIV and every NASB that you're, that you're going to read. Right? It, it was just an incredible discovery. But James, son of Alphaeus, actually lands in his picture and it's the oldest picture that we have. So then on to Thomas. Thomas, this is actually an early engraving of Thomas. So if you look at this picture, Thomas is actually looking to some activity out beyond him. Of course, the, the, one, the one story we have about Thomas is he's doubting Thomas, right? That's, that's really how he's known. But really what's intriguing to me is what he does with the rest of his life, right? What Thomas does is what, what he's doing right here is he's actually in an exalted state, looking at some activity. This activity that's off screen there is multiple soldiers that are killing him with spears. That's what he's looking at. Well, where did Thomas go? And we have a lot of information about Thomas. Thomas actually makes his way to central and southern India. And, and, and what, what, is, what is remarkable is, again, to this day, there are regions within India that have never been Hindu they still self-identify as Christian. And they have always regarded Thomas as being the one that actually took the gospel to them. Next picture is actually kind of interesting. This is, uh, this is not ancient, of course. Uh, this is a stamp from India that even to this day they still regard Thomas as being the one who brought the gospel of all places to India. He had to walk there. That's a long way away. But that's what God used. Well, one of the themes that we're seeing all the way through is that these guys were all Jewish, but God took them to take the gospel to people very unlike them. They didn't look like them, didn't speak the same language, different skin color, different backgrounds, different beliefs, and God used that to be able to share the truth with those individuals. Okay, so we're down to the very end here, last two. Next one is Simon the Zealot. So remember I said earlier, you have, even among the disciples, you have very extreme people. So on the one hand, you have somebody like Matthew, who is viewed as the lowest of the low, right? By that society, not because of Matthew himself. On the other side of the ledger, you have somebody who could not have been more different than Matthew in Simon the Zealot. He's also called Simon the Canaanite. Now what we know about the Zealots is that um, a zealot within the first century within Palestine would have said the only good Roman is a dead Roman or a Roman on his way out of town. They wanted nothing to do with anything like Rome or anyone who had any exposure to Rome. So they made it their mission in life to try to create insurrection and instability to be able to convince the Romans they needed to just go ahead and pick up and move away. Okay? There was actually an extreme faction of the zealots, right? We, we actually take that term and it found its way into English the way we use it now, like uh, I'm a zealot for gravy, right? Something like that. But there, there was a, an extreme form of the zealots known as the 
Sicarii. And the Sicarii were people who viewed themselves as assassins that tried to hasten Rome leaving that area. So they would actually carry out assassinations. They were known as the Sicarii because of this little curved blade called a Sicarum that they would hide away until they were ready to do their business. Okay? So Simon the Zealot comes from that extreme. He wasn't that extreme in his, in his activities, but in his beliefs. In fact, we find out that a lot of the Pharisees were zealots. And in fact, the zealots were very, very close to all of the Pharisees because they believed the same thing. Okay? The very, very different. And some might say actually extreme. The last thing I'll say about Simon is that <clears throat> the zealots believed that it was justifiable if I were to commit a crime in this life if it helped me to achieve an end that were better for the nation. So if you killed somebody, certainly you could be killed for that, but you would have a better place in the afterlife because of this activity that you did in this life. So in the zealots, we actually have the equivalent of first century's jihadi who believes that my afterlife will be better and the ends justify the means. Jesus, of all people, chooses somebody from that group to come in and be part of the disciples. I just think that's amazing. So next picture, this is actually a very early picture of, of, uh, of Simon the Zealot as a much younger man. Simon dies um, after he has been taken to Persia, or actually he takes the gospel to present-day Iran and a part of Iraq. He's actually killed because one of the local uh, uh, chieftains requires that he sacrifice to their local sun god. And he says, not going to do it. Right? So he dies as a result. Now, the last one we'll talk about before you break out your sack lunches, Larry. The last one is a disciple, a rather young disciple by the name of Thaddeus. Thaddeus, is, I think his claim to fame is he has three names. He's called Thaddeus, Jude, and also Labias. But you, we, we really know him as Thaddeus. Um, let's go to the next picture. Thaddeus actually travels through Syria. This is actually a, a early, this comes from the 5th century, comes from the inside of a monastery, and this is actually in present-day Syria, right, which is where this is found. Thaddeus, uh, he and Simon were fairly close, and Thaddeus meets his end about 65 A.D., being crucified in Persia. That's where he meets his end. So why, why do we share these stories? I think what was on my heart and what was on my mind when Steve said, hey, listen, I'm going to be gone. Can you take the pulpit? And I'm going, to, okay, was, was this, is that, as, as the Apostle Paul told the Colossians, watch out for each other. Make sure that you prioritize your connection in Christ. It's going to be more important. That connection, that relationship will be more important than your relationship to any of these other um, entities within your life. Make sure and also keep a cool head when, when your society around you is kind of bearing down to get you to lessen your commitment to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if the Colossians can do it, if the disciples being very, very different people from different walks of life, different political views, right, coming from different levels of society, uh, different levels of experience, some married, some not, if they can do it, then, then certainly this is something that we can do. So my encouragement for us is 
This is, again, not something that will self-resolve, but over time that we have to just make sure that we are ready in helping each other to be ready for that outside pressure, that pressure leaning in. So just a few thoughts. The gospel was taken to the then-known world. This is part of how it happened. When Jesus told his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to be my representatives in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, this is kind of how it happens. This is how it lays out. Secondly, as we just said, the gospel's taken to people who don't look or sound or behave anything like these disciples, and get, yet, yet God takes these individuals who are very different and gives them the same common purpose. These were ordinary men. We are ordinary people. Right? And some of these guys were not the people that you might expect would be chosen as some of these original followers of Christ. Uh, very much like what he has called us to in our ministries. And then fourthly, as we've already said, the, the, the relationship that the disciples had with one another, it started out with them being very, very different. Their lives ended up with them being really solid and same on the same purpose. So I, I hope it's been helpful. Um, I hope the reminder, well, the reminder is as much for me as it is for anybody in this room. That again, over time, we are going to have to be more and more attuned to how we can maintain that our commitment to each other is more important than the commitments that we may have or the forces in this, in this society that are trying to pull us to one position or the other that really might affect our relationships with others in the body of Christ. So, With that, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I do thank you for an opportunity just to revisit uh, both the truths of your word and to be able to revisit the, the lessons that the lives of our brothers in times past would be there to share with us. We thank you for that. Thank you for the examples that you've given us. Thank you again for your word. I thank you also for our church family and for literally handpicking the people that are within this little family that we would be part of each other's lives. And Father, use us to strengthen each other to be ready for the ministry that awaits us, uh, literally in the moments to come. And we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus.